Hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Enterprise Linux Security Show. I'm here, as always, with Chow. How you doing? I'm fine, Jay. Always a pleasure. And 20. Whoa, how time flies. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does. It doesn't even really feel like it's been that many, but I, I know, yeah. obviously, the numbers show for themselves, and the playlist will show um, actually 21 episodes, but, you know, that it's 20. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in today's episode... I wanted to talk about cloud governance because this is something that is, I feel is very important. And I feel like some organizations take this seriously and some don't. And the goal I have is that for people out there that might not be looking at this or maybe might not even be aware of it, that they'll start to have that conversation and uh, maybe talk to their people about this and maybe make some plans and some improvements, if nothing else, just to have a greater idea and, and more eyes on what is being rolled out in your environment and the security of each. So that's what I'm going to talk about or what we're going to talk about. Yeah, and keep aware that we will be talking a lot about a lot of things and most of them deal with processes and administrative processes and how you're doing things and how you should be doing them differently. And um, cloud governance is not a tool that you just came and, okay, now I have cloud governance. That's right. not it. That's not how it works. This is a processing. This is something that you have to internalize on on your team and across the, the, the company as a whole, because it will probably touch on all aspects of the, the company, not just one specific thing. So to set the stage for this discussion, you know, the current, you know, state of the industry, basically, you know, as I'd like to call it. Um, we have, obviously, cloud. It's huge. Everyone knows what that is, I think. Um, I don't even think they'd be listening to this if they didn't. But, you know, obviously, the cloud is someone else's computer, some computer somewhere else, and you're using it for your stuff. And you don't know how the hardware is set up or what kind of rack it's in. It, it's someone else's problem, and they're just giving you access to it. Um, that's an oversimplification, obviously. Cloud is much bigger than that. But um, we have different cloud providers out there. Obviously, we have Amazon Web Services. They're huge. We have Azure. That's huge. Um, Google Cloud Platform. That's also huge. And then you have the smaller cloud providers, which, you know, I should put smaller in air quotes because, you know, a lot of people use them. We have DigitalOcean. We have Linode. Um, even Amazon has gotten into the smaller market with, uh, I believe it's called LightSail. Is there easier, uh, lower barrier to entry version of their cloud? So the idea is you can choose to pay for hardware in your own data center. Um, as we were talking off camera, you know, you mentioned paying for cooling and energy and all these different yep. things. And, <clears throat> you know, that's something you could do, but you could also run things in, in the cloud as well. And there's also this mindset where we have a new trend in this industry. We have to use that trend everywhere. Like at one point, it's like virtualize all the things and then it's containerize all the things. And now it's cloud all the things, right? Um, we have to, whatever it is, we have to do all the things. But the reality of the situation, we'll talk more about this later, is that the cloud isn't always a good fit for everyone. It might be a good fit for you. Um, so I'm not, I'm going to stay in the middle here. I'm not going to go one direction like you should be using the cloud. You shouldn't be. But a lot of people are. And we have the concept of cloud governance that I mentioned earlier, some organizations are well aware of and educated on this, and some probably don't even know what the heck I'm talking about, but they will understand shortly as we dive into cloud governance. 
Yeah, um, the cloud sometimes looks more like um, a solution looking for a, a problem than yeah. the other way around. Um, and we are going to take some flack from your comment right there that it's someone else's computer. I know somebody, some people get really pissed when they hear that about the cloud. Yeah, um, yeah we know it's not just somebody else's computer. It's more right. than that. This was hyperbole. So bear that in mind before you start replying. Mind. I know some people already commented yeah. as you uh, were They've saying already that. Did. But Please, yep. if you haven't pressed enter on that comment, just hold on for a few more seconds and we'll get to it. And also, please be aware of my dry sense of humor sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about a Spider-Man meme uh, earlier yeah. when it comes to whose responsibility <laughs> is it to patch the systems. And in, in, in my head, the Spider-Man meme where you have three Spider-Man yeah. pointing at each other. It's like, it's his responsibility. Yeah. No, it's his responsibility. <laughs> whose responsibility is it? We don't know. Um, so yeah. there's a lot of memes here we'll play off of for sure. That's actually something that deals directly with uh, cloud governance. Um, yeah. Patching responsibility and security responsibility for cloud systems. Um, when you contract a cloud service uh, provider for something, let's say host a virtual machine or something, yep. you should be aware that it's your virtual machine. You're responsible for patching it. And if it breaks, it's your virtual machine and you have to fix it. Just because it's in that magical place, the, cr the cloud, it doesn't mean that it gets fixed on itself or on its own, right. or that uh, it won't be targeted by malicious actors. Okay, so bear that in mind. Mm -hmm. Also, to go back to a point that you were making previously regarding cost. Um, if a cloud provider tells you that their biggest advantage is cost, um, try to find a different cloud provider. It's because their other features are not up to par. Because when you're looking for a cloud solution for a specific problem, if you compare, if you actually crunch the numbers and you compare the, the cost of uh, uh, getting a specific uh, set of memory, a specific uh, CPU power, a specific storage amount, and you compare it with actually purchasing the hardware for your on-premises uh, data center, assuming that you have one, over the period of one to three years, it will probably be cheaper to have the on-premises stuff, even accounting for electricity and cooling. Um, so bear that in mind. The cloud has many advantages, but cost is probably not the one that you want to go for. If you just want to go for lower cost, it might not be the adequate solution for your problem. It has yeah. many other advantages, specifically dealing with spike capacity when it can actually scale pretty well and basically on demand and you don't get that on-premises. That's something that's basically impossible to have on-premises. You don't have infinite right. capacity available. But cost alone should not be the driving factor for selecting the cloud over any other solution. And sorry for renting off on this. This no, has been a pet a peeve very... of mine. This has been a pet peeve of mine for years now whenever I hear somebody saying that, oh, the cloud is cheaper or it's amazingly cheap to have this amount of capacity. It's not just crunch the numbers, look at the actual amount that you would be paying over three years and see how much uh, servers you could actually buy with that many. No, that's so true. I, I think whether, I mean, it, there can be significant cost savings depending on the use case. And one thing that I'll mention that I haven't personally seen savings on ever is storage. Um, because every time I have a client uh, you know, have me analyze their cloud bill, right? Storage, I, I don't think I've seen a situation where storage wasn't number one when it comes to their costs, because it's one thing if you have a, you know, you know, a decently busy website, it's not the busiest in the world, but it's it's important to you and you have that in the cloud, that's fine. But the minute you put all your build artifacts into the cloud and you have these really huge uh, files 
and then you see your bill go up tens of thousands of dollars at that point. Okay. Maybe it's not the best thing, or maybe it is depending, but uh, the moment you hit flash storage, for example, the moment they ch start oh, charging you yeah. for premium storage, for example, the bill goes through the roof and it, it would really be much does. cheaper to get uh, SSDs for your local servers at that point. Yeah. So about cloud gov governance then, uh, what the heck yeah. is that? So we are talking about cloud governance. You know, the thing is the cloud is being used. You know, we could argue if a company, you know, there could be a company out there that is saving a ton of money by using the cloud and companies that are not. But regardless, the cloud is being used and it is. Yeah. And with that, with that um, responsibility, um, I mean, you have a responsibility, right? With that power comes, I was going to make a Spider-Man joke. Method, <laughs> came close. Okay. So cloud <laughs> governance is basically having a set of rules in place when it comes to the services that your organization runs in the cloud. And it's very important to have this because if you don't have rules in place and you don't educate your people on those rules, then, well, People are going to solve a problem however they solve the problem. Doesn't mean it's going to be solved the best. Worst case scenario, um, you could have like a cloud provider that has a particular service that is publicly available by default, whereas other services on that same platform are not. So maybe you deployed a service and you're in a hurry, there's crunch time, you know, I don't know what the issue might be, but it's it's not publicly available at all. That's the default. So, okay, that's great. And then you roll out another service, but that service is publicly available by default. Um, but, you know, maybe you're not thinking about that because the first one that you deployed is not. Uh, you have to understand how that works. But at a greater level, if a company doesn't know what's being deployed in the cloud and how it's being deployed, my fear is that we're going, and I hope I'm wrong on this, I really do, that we're going to see in the news that some companies more and more often are, are getting blown wide open just because... Um, you know, they have this typical response where they have to de develop something and they want to use the cloud for it. And they do develop it. They hire a bunch of people, you know, just get a bunch of hands on this and, and get it done quick. And then it's done quick, maybe not the best way. And some things are not very secure. And then everything comes crashing down. Cloud governance is basically setting some rules in place for how things are, you know, used, how things are uh, produced and developed. And abiding by that and how do you abide by that and what types of components do you want or should you look out for and those are the types of things in a cloud governance policy that you would want to take a look at and as we'll talk about later there's even tools that you can install and set up that'll kind of be like a digital shadow it almost like in the background slapping people on the wrist and sending a message no you shouldn't have that database server publicly available just to kind of watch for those things but that could be a slippery slope too, because then you have to have someone watching the governance solution. So where does this start and where does this end? And that's kind of, uh, that's one of the things that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, who watches the watchers? Um, cloud governance is a set of policies, okay? Let's get that out of the way. Yep. Um, the definition for cloud governance is a set of policies that define the, the relationship between your company and cloud providers. How services are contracted, how, who's the interlocutor, who's, who on your end will do those types of deals so that some people on some department decides to acquire a service and then somebody else on the different department acquires a different service probably from a different provider because it's cheaper at the time for that specific problem and then they don't talk between themselves and a cloud governance policy will define that on your end the cloud services will have to be 
at least acknowledged or uh, abided by the IT director, for example. And that's the person in charge of those deals. And it yeah. goes through him. And he's responsible for making sure that the services that are contracted are actually compatible between themselves and actually play nice with the services that you have on-premises, for example. If you have a Windows-only infrastructure, then you might want to look into Azure rather than looking into a different cloud provider because mm -hmm. it just works better with that. It's designed to work with that. Even if most virtual machines on Azure actually run Linux, but that's just an aside. Um, yep. But yeah, the the cloud governance cloud governance is a set of policies, is a set of administrative policies, like I say. To acquire a service, you need to go through this person and get his approval to acquire the service that you want. It's not just someone that uh, comes to work one day and decides, oh, I saw this great ad on the news yesterday and we should have this service and it will yep. work great for us. That's not how it's done, okay? No. Right. Because then you get into a whole lot of new issues. There is always a problem with IT. Um, Again, we have already talked about this when we discussed zero trust security, when people decide to bring their own devices to work and then it has to connect to the network and it should have a separate network and all that. And those devices are basically black boxes to the IT team. They are part of the shadow IT, like you mentioned before. They are the things that get connected to the network, attached at some point, but IT has no control over them. They don't know who's responsible for them. Um, and it's the same thing with cloud providers. If you contract an Amazon database and then you contract a Google Cloud compute node and then you contract something on Azure and you don't inform someone on IT or there is no central way of actually knowing what's available for the company, you will get in, in you will have problems further down the road. Someone is not secured properly because the IT team didn't know it existed, for example, and they didn't know that they had yeah. to secure it. And yeah, um, cloud governance should stipulate that, should stipulate who's responsible for acquiring those services, who's responsible for making sure that they play nicely with the services that you already have. Yep, I completely agree. And one thing I'm going to get out of the way, or a couple of things I'm going to get out of the way real quick, because these are aside, and at least one of which has little to do with security. But one of the things that I do recommend, we'll talk about security in a moment, because that's the main goal here, obviously. But cost is something that I also think that people don't look at, um, you know, when it comes to using a cloud provider. And it's not something that you, you know, analyze once in a while. I mean, there's ways to save money. There's there's ways to implement things in a way that isn't going to saturate your bill. But if you don't know about the ways that you should, you know, cost savings things that you can do, or nobody's you know watching that, that could be a problem. So, for example, if you have a website that you know gets you know a medium amount of load or bandwidth going on there, um, and but sometimes you get a spike that's just astronomical, and you just need like a bunch of cores and RAM and and all that to handle the, these big spikes. They don't happen all the time. Um, you, you might implement a server that has a bunch of cores and you're paying for it all the time, despite the fact that there's spikes. But with cloud, we have you know horizontal scaling and you know auto scaling, if you will, to where it can keep up with the load and you can save money. But even more than that, there's reserved instances, there's usage credits and all these things. Um, I'm not going to talk any more about that because it's you know out of scope for this podcast. But you know that's obviously something I just want to communicate that people should be taking a look at. I think it involves just understanding. The um, you know the pricing structure and what's available there, and the other thing I'm going to mention too is that a lot of what we're going to talk about 
isn't just cloud governance, it's just governance. Because someone might be listening to this episode and they might be like, well, we don't use the cloud. We have all physical um, racks. So mm -hmm. this episode in its entirety has nothing to do with us. But actually, I would argue the majority, if not all of what we're going to mention here does apply to your infrastructure, regardless of whether it's cloud. Cloud is a very easy thing because it's very super popular here. But if even on the ones that are not in the cloud, your services that are not in the cloud, um, you'll still benefit by um, keeping an eye on your security in the way that I'm going to be talking about. So I just wanted to throw that out there as well, even for those of you that are not currently using the cloud, that some of these things might actually apply to you as well. Absolutely. What I was saying about being a central person responsible for acquiring cloud services, it goes without saying. There should be a person responsible for acquisitions globally on IT-related stuff. Um, nobody should just be buying servers for your company without letting the IT team know, for example. Just because one department needs a new system, they shouldn't go out and buy them on their own. They should be aware that there are already existing systems and whatever they bring in or want to acquire should play nicely with those. And that's the responsibility of the IT team, not the individual department there. So what I said before about that person being responsible, it applies also on premises, not just to the cloud. And getting back to that point that you made about cost, that's actually an attack type. Um, if I know that your services are hosted on the cloud and I want to attack your company, I can make you incur into financial losses immediately simply by DDoSing your, your web servers that are mm -hmm. cloud hosted. Because I know that each connection attempt that I make will incur a cost on your end. And done properly, that can scale really well. I can actually make you lose a lot of money that way. I will make Amazon a lot of money in the process, and they'll like me for that, but I will be directly attacking your company, both on right. the IT and availability side, as well as the financial side. So there is an attack vector there as well. That's a very good point, actually, because that, I mean, I mean, when I, I immediately think of auto-scaling, where you have a server, like a load balancer first, but then be, you know, after the load balancer, you have like maybe one or two servers and you have it set up that there always has to be one or, or two. Maybe you have it set up that there always mm -hmm. has to be two for some redundancy. But then you have the scaling policy such that if the load goes over a certain percentage for a certain amount of time, that more servers will just spin up automatically to handle the, the usage spike. And then when the usage spike drops down, the servers will start to go away. Um, and, you know, it's very important to set a maximum as well because, well, you don't want to pay for you know two thousand servers, right? Especially if there's some kind of uh, error in your logic when you auto scale to where it just keeps infinite. You know, there's an infinite loop and it keeps spinning up servers. You have to have a limit, and if someone can you know go through an API call or or some kind of way to maybe make your you, you know your minimum number of servers one thousand, right? And your maximum number of servers ten thousand. Well, that's a problem because you're going to be paying a lot of money. So and there's many other ways too that 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 can hurt you. So I, yeah, I absolutely agree that the security or the pricing point is definitely a security thing as well. But one thing I want to um, really put some focus on here to explain the scenario is that there's cloud providers, there's cloud services, there's different types of things in the cloud. So obviously if you go with AWS, Google Cloud or any of those, you could spin up a Linux server, Windows server, whatever in the cloud and, and there you go. You have a server that you can use for your use case, but then there's also services like um, cloud apps that is not necessarily like you're subscribing to AWS. Maybe you want Jira, for example, 
but you don't want to run it. You don't want to maintain it. So you pay Atlassian for you know the privilege of being able to log into a Jira server that they maintain. In that case, guess who's patching it? Not you. They're patching it. Um, and that can make someone kind of numb to the cloud because if they're using Jira or whatever other application, I shouldn't pick on Jira, but um, you know the marketing is like, yeah, we'll take care of that for you. You know the patching, the uptime, all that. You just pay us rather than run it yourself. We'll take care of it. And then they say, oh, well, this is working out really well for us, actually. So how about we just move all of our services into the cloud and, and put them in Amazon or Google or whatever? And then it's different at that point because when you're using a cloud provider and you're building your own services, um, Amazon calls this the shared responsibility model. And I think that's extremely important to start with because with the shared security model, they make it very clear I'm sure like there's, I don't know if they call it the same thing in Azure and other platforms or if they have a different buzzword for it, but with the shared responsibility model, they make it clear that they're providing you with access to build servers, but it's up to you to patch them, to secure them, to control what is able to go in or out and to architect that with the with some kind of sane practice that's going to make it you know reasonably um, defined or, or developed well. Obviously, nothing's important. I mean, nothing, I meant to say nothing is like, you know, 100% secure, obviously, but they make it very clear, you know, at, at least with Amazon, I'm sure the others do this as well, that we provide you with this, but we expect you to do your due diligence in getting things patched. And, you know, if this big enough problem and you have some a server that's DDoSing a bunch of others on the internet or something like that, then guess what? You might actually get shut down or it's a violation of your terms of service with that provider. So at one point you have an app that's a service that's available that they do everything for you. Then you have the cloud providers, which they do. Well, actually, all they do is give you access to it and it's up to you to secure it. And then you have certain things in between. So at first, you have to understand what is your role here? What is your responsibility? Uh, what are you providing? What is your cloud server providing? And understand that because that actually could be a huge problem. And that's kind of where the basis of cloud governance starts because you have to know what your responsibilities are and what you have to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. And this actually ties into something that I mentioned when the closing of the last episode, when I teased about this report that we are going to come out with uh, from TaxCare. And in one of the questions, we asked the the people taking the survey if they knew who was responsible for patching the systems that they had on the cloud. And that was basically a control question where we were expecting 100% of people saying yes. And we only got 70%. So only 70% knew that they were responsible for patching those systems. And that's really mind-blowing because (laughs) almost a third of the respondents are not aware that they are responsible for patching those services. So they just assume that it's in the cloud, somebody is taking care of them. Right. And that is something that has to be specified on the, on the cloud governance uh, policy. Yep. Uh, when you deploy, when you contract a new service, when you hire a new cloud provider to provide you with some service or something, you need to have a specific set of guidelines that uh, illustrate how it will be maintained, who is responsible for doing what, who is responsible for shutting down the machines, for example, if it's part of a DDoS that you haven't caught yet. Is the cloud provider responsible for that? Are your team members responsible for logging in somehow and shutting down the the instance? Um, 
is it supposed to go down without notice? Is it supposed to always be available even if it's under attack? All of those things should be stipulated on the cloud governance. Um, so yep. that you know when you are contracting a service what features you should be looking for and what you should expect from your from the cloud provider that you're doing business with and what your IT team and the things that your IT team should be aware that it's their responsibility to take care of. So yep. things like patching, things like deploying new systems, things like uh, securing databases, things like installing new applications, it should be stipulated on the on the cloud governance policy. Who is responsible for that? Who is responsible for, for example, for doing security checks on those cloud uh, services? Is your IT team? Is something that the cloud provider is responsible for doing? Is it something that you will contract to a third party? All of those things should go into the cloud governance policy. Yep. Other things that could go in there as well. Um, you could have situations where there are certain, and I think everyone should do this, you have certain things that must be in the image that you're deploying, the operating system layer. So basically, an example of that is, you know, OpenSSH defaults. Obviously, your automation system should be taking care of most of this because that's really what's going after in customizing things. But there's a long list of, I almost said best practices, a long list of sane starting points for things <laughs> that you can start with to better have, you know, have a better security origin with your image when you're deploying something. And that's a very important thing because if you you have some defaults there, if nothing else, and you can argue it's it's not going to really help you much, but it's a good starting point that gets you you know kind of part of the way where you want to be. Automation system comes in and does the rest, but uh, a sane or as sane as you can get it image to start from that could be part of it. Also, what's allowed to talk to your network? Like, do you have a policy where you have to have a certain kind of proxy? <clears throat> that's in front of things. How do you set up your database servers? How do you set up your internal networking? So your internal components, because you can still have an internal networking system inside cloud. Just because you're using a publicly available service doesn't mean that everything is publicly available. Some things will be publicly available by default. Some things will not. You have to know which. And obviously, close down the things that are. You can determine how the systems communicate to each other. So for example, you could have a database server that has no access to the outside world at all, but you have a you know, front-facing web server that people are accessing when they view or visit your website, and it's allowed to talk to the database server. It has to because it has to have somewhere to store its data, but you don't want to expose that database server to the public internet, but you do want people to go to your website, so you might have a proxy in front of the web server. Maybe your web server isn't even publicly available either, but you have that one entry point that defines how people get in. So then the situation is, well, um, if somebody, you know, goes against that and they just make the database server publicly available or they just choose not to install a proxy and put the web server as the front-facing thing, um, that would be a violation of that. Because if a situation happens where you're hacked, then why was that done? Was it because someone wasn't following the policy? Was it because of a vulnerability that wasn't patched? And also, um, you mentioned patching, which is a very obvious thing, you know, part of your policy, like if it's a... Um, if the threat level is X, we have to have it patched within this number of hours or whatever. And I say hours because I hate days when it comes to patching, but I don't want to facilitate procrastination. But what's your, what's, what is your response to that? When there's a very serious vulnerability, how do you go about implementing that? And you also tie in your other processes that we'll talk about in other episodes, like your disaster recovery plan, your disaster yeah. prevention plan. 
Um, these are, I know that was a lot, but these are a lot of the different things that you have to think about because the issue is this. If your company is on the news because you got blown wide open, you're going to probably wish that you had some sort of cloud governance if you didn't already have that. And if it was just because of um, the fact that you're developing a product, you're trying to get it out the door, you're rushing through it, nobody knows what anyone is doing, um, you don't even know it's publicly available, that's a real problem. Yeah, congratulations, you're the proud owner of a leaky bucket. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, this is, these are things that go directly into the cloud governance policy. For example, if your systems are known to be exploitable or vulnerable to, um, I don't know, CVSS score 9 or higher vulnerability, you are able to take them down immediately without asking for permission from the administration, for example. You don't have to ask other business units if you're if it's possible to take down the services that will cause business disruption to patch that, to address that issue. And that's something that goes into the policy. And obviously these types of policies will be approved by the administration beforehand, of course. They will be created by the IT team or the CIO or whoever is responsible for that. They will be approved by somebody at the top and then you are bound to follow them as well. So yeah. if and this will help you. If you are in a situation where you're exposed to a new vulnerability, it's critical, you have to act now. This will provide you with the ability to say, okay, we are acting under the purview of the, of the policy that we have that has been approved by the administration and we are taking care of the issue. It causes business disruption, it's bad for business, but it will save money. It will keep the company safe from this uh, vulnerability. Yep. And this is something that goes directly into the policy as well. If a vulnerability that's critical or higher or something like that is known to be to be affecting our service, we need to act within a certain time frame, for example. And it's our responsibility to do, to do this, or it's the cloud provider's responsibility to do this. And that goes into the agreement that you have with the cloud provider. But it yep. falls under the purview of the policy, so you have this backing when you make that decision. It will help you in the end. Absolutely. A big part of this is knowing who can do what, who's able yeah. to do what on their responsibility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because let's just say, for example, you're a company that you produce a download file. I don't know, I'm just making stuff up. And you want, this is freely available. It doesn't cost any money. It's it's just a, it could be proprietary, but you want everyone to have access to this download. And that's the whole point. You want this to be out there for people to grab. So, you know, maybe you'll put it in a bucket you know, use the leaky bucket example. Um, but maybe you want your bucket to be leaky because this is a, a non-protected thing that you want everyone to have access to. So you have an employee that has access to this bucket and maybe it's their job to put the new versions in that bucket to make them available. But make sure that that person, if that's all they do on the cloud platform, that they don't have permission to spin up or delete servers, right? Because if their only job is just to put a blob into a bucket, then you want to make sure that they don't have the ability to do other things. And it's not because you don't trust them. It's just because, well, if their account, you know, was able to be um, blown open or just taken control of, then the person who has control of that account can do everything that account has permission to do. So if you don't lock that down, next thing you know, why are my servers deleting right now? They're all like going down, even every single one of them. Um, and that's just a hypothetical scenario there. But the whole point is that you understand who is able to do what and that they're not able to go beyond the uh, role of duty there in their um, abilities to do things that they really shouldn't be doing because you yeah. want to really lock that down. 
Yeah, that ties both into responsibility and into security policies that are that you should apply to whatever cloud service that you're contracting. Um, when you acquire a new service, if you have this policy that says, okay, it has to accept only encrypted communications, it cannot have anything other than if it's a web server, only the web server port open to the public. If it's a database, then it should only accept connections from X, Y, and Z IPs, for example. Um, if you have that set in paper and you have that defined, then you know what you need to apply whenever you have a new service that falls under that. So having that written down, it will help your work whenever you have a new situation on, that you need, you need something new from the cloud. You need a new service or something. Then you have a set of policies that you know that you have to apply to that new service. And that way you can ensure that it follows your guidelines and that it follows the security policies that you have in place. And you also have something to guide you in case something goes wrong and you can check what was what was actually missing. It will help you improve that policy for the future and it will help you find the hole that was breached whenever you have a security issue. Right, that's absolutely true. We, and also another thing I wanna shed some light on and I'll steer this back to how it's related to governance in just a moment, but uh, multiple cloud providers because there's two types of Actually, I should say three types of, um, you know, IT companies, right? You have the, the company that uses no cloud at all. Nah, get off my lawn. I'm not using the cloud thing. Like we have physical servers. Uh, no. Then you have uh, the, the next type of company, which is they're all in on one cloud platform. They're all about AWS. They're all about Google Cloud. And then you might have the third that's hypothetically not, you know, necessarily quote unquote married to a cloud provider, but they use or they they have expertise in multiple. They're, they're able to pivot, right? So the, the reason I bring this up is because I really, because when it comes to cloud governance tools, you have tools that are, um, I don't want to say, excuse me, cross-platform, right? But they support more than one cloud provider. So they could give you similar or the same controls. They support more than one cloud provider. So it's not an AWS solution specifically or a Google Cloud solution. But what it does is it kind of watches what people do or you know what they implement and if they implement something that's against a policy then it might have access to shut down that service and then um, flag it for approval or something like that and there, these individual cloud providers have their own solution like for example aws control tower which allows you to implement controls like that that's great because if you are all in an aws I mean, it makes sense, right? You want to use AWS Control Tower because you're already in AWS and that's built into AWS. That's great. But where I caution this, though, is I have seen situations, and I'm going to try to describe this um, as vaguely as I can because I don't want to give away the vendor or the you know the client I was working with by name. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like being all in on any cloud platform is a bad idea because what happens if you have to get off of that platform? And no, I'm not saying that AWS is going to go away tomorrow, although, you know, in the news, it's constantly happening where they're down, but we're not talking about that. Um, you might have a situation where your company has to pivot. And I actually worked with a company that did have to pivot. Literally, they went to Azure. Why did they go to Azure? It wasn't that they hated the AWS technology. It's just that Amazon got into a market that was a direct competition to that company and what they do. So their company policy was not to put money into a um, competing product, which, you know, AWS was not necessarily itself competing with them, but something the Amazon company itself was doing 
did start to compete with them. So they had to shift over to Azure. And that was a big deal because that was really hard to do. So in this situation, if you put all of your cloud governance tools and, and, and controls into AWS Control Tower, now not only do you have to migrate to a different provider, you also have to recreate those same controls in that other provider that could add a lot of work to that. So I'm more of a fan of the um, third party um, you know, tools because they have these and I forgot the names of them, otherwise I might mention a few, but what they do is they support multiple cloud providers where you can choose what your users are able to do. Like this user is able to add VMs, but not delete them. This user is able to add to buckets, but can't create buckets. Uh, this person is able to look at the bill, but they're not able to actually change anything, but they need to report on the bill. And then you could roll that into it such that even if you switch cloud providers, then those controls will follow because the service you're using to provide the cloud governance tools support more than one. In that case, I'm more of a fan of that. I know there's going to be some people that disagree with me, but I get a little nervous when people are all in on one cloud platform, even to the point where they're using just those tools because then that makes pivoting as a company, which I feel good companies are able to pivot, it just makes it all that much harder. Yeah, vendor lock-in on the cloud is a really insidious problem. Um, it might not just be that they need to pivot, but companies should have the flexibility to change their technology stack if they had to, if they have some compelling reason, if they have some business change that they need to adapt to, if they need to move to a different uh, tool, for example, that requires a different cloud provider. And it's really tricky to do on the big ones. Uh, right. They don't want to let you go to a, <laughs> to a competitor, basically. Right. Um, so yeah, that is also something that you could add into your cloud governance policy. Uh, whatever service we, we get from the cloud should have an equivalent on at least another competitor so that on the future, we're not so locked into a specific vendor that we cannot pivot to a different one. Um, yep. Databases are a good example. Almost all of them provide you some type of database storage solution. Yep. And so that's something that you should be aware of. Also important, and I don't know if you want to add something else on this point here, mm -hmm. but I would like to go through something that ties also into data governance, that also ties into cloud governance policy. If you're a company that's, uh, that deals mostly with user data and uh, cares about the location of your data, you need to take into consideration, for example, if you're doing business in the EU, EU users data cannot leave the EU. It's part of GDPR. Right. It has to be housed on a data center on the EU, for example. And that has to tie in with your cloud provide with your cloud governance. It has to have to have localized data centers where your data will be housed. That's a requirement that you have. And that's a standards requirement and a lawful requirement as well. Your company can be liable for damages if you don't follow that. So yep. you should have that written down that if we get a new service from the cloud, we have to have assurances from the cloud provider that the data will be kept within that uh, jurisdiction or whatever else you have to restrain it with. Um, yep. That's an important part also of your cloud governance policy. Yeah, I would say it's it's really important because if you are in violation of something like that and you are being cracked down on, I really don't think the excuse, well, I didn't know they were doing that, would ever fly. I don't really think yeah. any government official would be, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, you didn't know. That's fine. Yeah, we all make mistakes. <laughs> I really don't think the conversation is going to go like that. Um, they're, they're, and, they're needing you to know about it. 
And the fines are not really cheap. Um, no. Amazon reported the largest fine from GDPR last year. It's on their financial report on the third quarter, I believe, and it's over 700 million. And that's a lot of money, even for Amazon. Yep. And you know that's that's the thing. I mean, there's all kinds of different things about data, uh, especially when it comes to personally identifiable information. Uh, obviously, the best thing to do is to not store anything at all that's personally identifiable because then there's no problem. You don't even have the data, right? So it can't people's credit card and you know social security numbers can't leak from your company if you've never captured that information. But you better be sure that information is not being captured because if it does leak, then that's a big problem. Yeah. You have to under, understand what data you're you're keeping and where it's saved, what servers it can be on. Also, your policy might even be have some off cloud things like local laptops. Like, like, do you really want, like if someone's job is to work with uh, personally identifiable information, um, you probably want them to be doing that on some protected server and not downloading it to their laptop that they also take home, you know, and, and play whatever the cool kids are playing on their <laughs> laptops nowadays. Um, you, you don't want something like that to leak. You got to know where that information is being stored and that you're in compliance with the laws and regulations and that your employees also understand it's not, it's about training too, but that they understand what their expectations are about what the data are, is being stored because um, you definitely don't want some kind of intrusion with things being leaked out. Oh, wow. We were storing that information. I had no idea we we're even keeping that. That's not, that's it just not a good situation. It doesn't even have to leak out. If you, if you're found to be storing your data outside of the EU, you can still be charged under the GDPR regulation. Yep. Um, it's all about storing the data. You don't even have to leak it. Um, yeah, you better not be audited. And <laughs> that's wow. something that you need to look for when you're get you're looking for services from the cloud. Um, if you're falling under those regulations, if you're doing business on the EU, if your users come from the EU, for example, you will be subject to these even if you're based on the US. So that's something to look out for. The, the internet doesn't really have borders, but you will no. be under non-compliance there. Well, that's the border um, gateway protocol, but nobody likes it. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the same oh, thing. Oh, that's just magic, that protocol there. Yeah. Um, but we don't talk too much about it. No. Um, <laughs> I oh, yeah. You were mentioning the place where your, your employees were connecting to the cloud. There is also something else that can go into the cloud governance policy, which is you can only access them the dashboards and the, the administrative control panels on your cloud provider from a specific subset of systems and from a specific set of connections. You can't yep. do that from your laptop. And that goes into the policy. It mm -hmm. can only happen through the VPN connection. It has to go out through a specific IP address, for example. It has to happen inside of the network perimeter that we have. Uh, all of those different things you need to consider for your use case, most may be overkill. But those are the types of things that should also go on the policy. You cannot access that just from wherever else you want to do it. You can't do that from your phone, for example. That should yep. be specifically stated there. You should never do that from your phone. Uh, actually, don't use should, use could. You cannot do that from your phone. And that's stricter there. And it has to be stricter. Because those are the types of things that if you break it, if it gets... Uh, somehow out in the, the open, it can cause serious problems. And those are the things that need to go into the policy. And also peer review. You know, maybe yeah. you know, your employee, you know, they're doing the best they can. They they they're following the rules 
and they understand the rules. They they went through the training. They get it. They know it. But um, have someone else look at it just in case there was an oversight or something you know wasn't done correctly. A peer review is great, and it's not just for developers. It's for cloud engineers or even system engineers in general. Because when you're developing something, you know you're doing the best job you can. But we mess things sometimes. We're human. It happens, and maybe someone else or your your team might catch something that you missed. And that's not only a learning opportunity, but it's a great thing to have as part of that too, that that changes have to be peer reviewed. So that way there's a general consensus that people understand what's being changed, not just, oh yeah, that person's handling it. They're really good. They know what they're doing. I'm, I'm just going to go to lunch. They got this, right? Uh, it's probably not the and, best way to think about it. And not just peer reviewed. Also within the company, try to bring in as many people as you can from different departments. For example, get somebody from accounting or finance to look at the, the final document as well. They might have input on how this can be optimized to save some costs somewhere. Um, if you require a specific set of features there, they might flag this as being, I don't know, too expensive, for example, and they need to be on board with this as well because ultimately those are the ones that will be approving the, the purchases. So yeah, try to bring in as many people from different departments. Don't let the, this policy just be something that you create and keep closed within IT. Let everybody in the company at least be aware that it exists and that they have somewhere that they can look it up and look at it because they might break it if they don't know that it exists. The, For example, something simple like, the whatever cloud service that you con that you hire has to provide the encrypted data at rest, for example. Um, if people don't know that that's a requirement, they might just try to look for a different cloud provider that's cheaper and doesn't offer that. So make people aware of it, make people's requirements part of it. Ask people, okay, if we had this type of cloud service, what uh, impact would it have on your work? How it, could it be improved? What other features are important for your work? And try to work that into the document as well, as much as possible, obviously. You will not be able to take all of the, of the requests, but at least the most sensible ones. And having people with different sensibilities will alert you to different things that you are not aware of. On IT, we tend to be very focused on what we're doing and not look too much at the other departments. They are just weird yeah. with their accountings and all their, their stuff. Um, but these have some interesting points sometimes, and you should pay attention to what they're saying more often. It will help you on your work as well. I agree. And definitely take a look at uh, cloud governance tools. Don't see them as a set it and forget it turnkey thing that's just going to provide all your cloud governance and you're fine. No, 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 no. it doesn't do that. But it, it's kind of useful to have something that is looking at what your team members are doing and just watching for things like making something publicly available without approval. Um, you could have these tools to automate, they can automatically shut that down and disconnect it, or you can make it a, a more soft failure where a manager is alerted that it happened and they can approve it or whatnot. Um, you could even have some that actually go around, go behind people and fix things, but that's very useful. And there, and like I mentioned earlier, there's some that you know support multi-clouds and, and all that, but you need to also have someone looking at that too, because if those controls fail or something changes, you you got to keep up on that. So definitely look into those tools, but don't make them like your end-all be-all solution. It's just a component of it. And I think that at least helps you because there's a good chance it's going to be caught and you'll, you'll have that extra layer of protection. Can't depend on it, but it is something that you might want to look into. There are vendors out there and one of the cool things about some of these is that they, when they work with multiple cloud uh, providers, 
they might give you like you know one set of controls that they translate to all the cloud providers. So if it creates a user on one, it creates it the same on the others. Um, just have a look at that and just just take a look at the market, see what's out there, see if it makes sense to make it part of your plan. But at the very least, make your people aware of what their requirements and things are, what they should be doing, what they absolutely should not be doing, where things should be stored, where it shouldn't be stored, and that everyone's on the same page and they know to follow this because you have to have a company-wide um, stance on these things that everyone needs to be in sync with. Yeah, uh, the basic things are just uh, the who's responsible for acquiring cloud services. That's very important. Mm-hmm. What the security measures are for new cloud services. Um, how you go along if you need to migrate for a, to a, to a different cloud provider if. If you contract something that only exists in one, it might not be a perfect solution. Right. You shouldn't you shouldn't deliberately get tied into a specific vendor. That's not a very good place to be in. Because sooner or later they either go out of business or they just shut off the service and Google is king there. They don't care if a service that they shut off is being used by millions of people. Right. They will still shut it down. And they have done this repeatedly. Yeah. Um so Pay attention, try to get more people to look at the document, um, stipulate the security measures, that's very important, stipulate the responsibilities, have a clear view on the on the role segregations there that we also mentioned, who's responsible for doing what, uh, what the SLAs are, how often should patching happen, who is responsible for doing that patching, and those are all the things that need to go into your cloud uh, your cloud governance policy. I agree. And there's another thing I'll bring up too that's really important that I don't think gets um, communicated enough because I've seen this bite so many companies before. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of these, I think they all do this. They say, you know, don't use the root account in your cloud provider for everything. Create individual accounts. And we've said this, we said it in this podcast create individual accounts where each user has his or her own, you know, privileges that are for their job. So that's good, you know, you do you disable the root account after you create individual accounts, but make sure that the emails to the root account are going to a mailbox that is shared and seen by multiple people. This is huge, especially with AWS, because with AWS, their platform is built on not having your servers be pets, but cattle, disposable. They To use their platform, you need to spin up your services in an automated sense in case something goes down because this happens a lot. If AWS notices a problem on their hardware, they will let you know that your server will be deleted and they'll give you a date on this. And they're, they're clear. If you need to do something by this date because we will delete the server. Most of the time, um, often you can just shut it down and then start it back up and it starts on a different um, underlying host that doesn't have a problem. But pay attention to that. But if those emails are going to a root email that nobody is watching, then one day you go to work. Why are all my or, or why is a server deleted? Why is this server deleted? It was there yesterday. Who deleted this? Why did Amazon delete my server? Well, they let you know like a couple of weeks ago that this was going to happen at least, if not longer. So you really do need to make sure that there's a shared mailbox that these important messages are going to. So that way, you know, your people are aware of any of these hardware failures because yeah, the whole point about cloud, you don't have to worry about the hardware, but unfortunately with some providers, you do still have to worry about the hardware because like I said, they'll let you know 
there's they're going to delete your resource if you don't do something because they had some kind of a failure on their end. It happens. Yeah. And as I was listening to you now, I remember something we haven't mentioned yet. Um, have a logging policy definition. Also oh, yeah. Included. Um, if you get a new service, it should include logs and support logs and hold those logs for months, for example, or should have some way to export those logs to a server that you own so that you can store that information. It should always be available and readily available for your IT team to look at it. So keep that in the policy. Every new yeah. service needs to be logged and it has to have this facility either to export the logs on a periodic uh, time frame or it has to be able to to parse it or to export it to an external server. That's also very important and it will help you. Absolutely. I'll even go as far as to say, not only do exactly what you just said, but don't, if you can help it, don't log into the same cloud provider account as your production infrastructure. What I mean by this, and I've seen this, uh, I've seen people do this and it's very smart. They'll actually start a secondary account with that same cloud provider have the logs go to that secondary account instead of the primary one. Mm -hmm. So you don't even have the logs in the same account that your production servers are in. So if someone breaks into that account, then they, they'll probably delete your logs, let's be honest, right? But yeah. if those logs are in another account, they could still delete them, but it's going to be harder because they have to break into that account to kill those logs. You still have those logs. You have a history of what's going on. And that's so smart. Like a lot of people forget about the fact that cloud providers enable you to have more than one account. And there's a reason for this because you might want things to be spread between accounts. And if nothing else, absolutely have your logs outside of your, pr your primary cloud account. It just makes sense. Yep. And yeah, I believe we've already provided you some food for thought there. Mm -hmm. This episode is already running long. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks for bearing with us through all of this. I know it's a lot of... Uh, words and a lot of noise that uh, yeah i hope that at least have we got across some of the points that we think are important regarding this if you have some type of cloud service you need a policy like this it will help you it will guide the way that you interact with your cloud providers and that you yeah. interact with your users and will provide you something that uh, will eventually have your back whenever something goes wrong okay, this failed, but we followed our policy. This is what we did, and we did it according to the policy. And at that point, it was the best that we could have done. And that will help you a lot. And what was your lessons learned by, by this experience? Document that, um, yeah. absolutely, because that's that's very important. You know, No matter how good you are at this, something will go wrong. I wish I, I, wish I didn't have to say that, but something will go wrong. And you, you yeah. will learn a lesson from that. Just make sure that that lesson is documented so other people can understand what went wrong and you know what we're doing to not have that happen again. And I feel like we can make an entire five-part series of all the things you could do wrong in cloud, and we would probably still not even scratch the surface. So yeah. I'll probably stop myself right there because I, I feel like it's just this never-ending rabbit hole of a discussion. But I think what we've done is we've really illustrated some of the things that I, I feel like in, in you know things that you feel like people should be paying attention to. And when it comes to the cloud, it's a new way of thinking. But if you approach it, like we've mentioned, have firm policies and things in place and understand that these policies will change. You'll be adding new things to them. You'll be adjusting things as you go. It's a never ending story. Um, and make it a team discussion, a company discussion, Make get everybody involved in this. So that way it's not just one person against the company, right? You want everyone on this, you want an advocate in every team that can 
you know, like you said, talk about their aspect of the company, how it impacts them mm-hmm. and what their points are. And it'll be a company culture. And it's not that difficult when it becomes a company culture as it would be if it's just you against all the other people. You don't want yeah. that. Get everybody on the same page. That's the way to do it. You don't want to impose it. You want people to buy into this, not being right. forced into this. Yep. And you'll find out just how many oppositional personalities you have working at your company <laughs> when you try to enforce it. <laughs> Believe me, I've seen Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So I think that's our episode. I think we've given people like an overabundance of things to talk about and think yeah. about. Um, but I that's what so. we do, right? We get get the mind working. And uh, hopefully we've done that. At least we try to. Yeah, we try to. All right. Well, thanks. thank you, everyone, for uh, watching, listening, or however you're digesting this content. And we'll be seeing you again very soon. So um, thank you for watching or listening. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. And until the next one. Bye. Bye.